If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of 1 Samuel, uh, in particular chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, you can jump up on behind each section of chairs. There are tray tables with Bibles on them. Feel free to grab one, use it this morning. If you don't own a Bible, keep that Bible. Let that be our gift to you. Um, and then come back and join us again because we're spending this calendar year working our way in an overview manner through the entire Bible. Uh, normally, we take one book at a time. And we teach our way through it, thought by thought, trying to understand uh, the content of that letter or book, but in particular, the thrust of that letter or that book and what that means for us and how that applies to us today. But this calendar year, we're doing that with the whole Bible. And instead of looking through the entire Bible in that manner of detail, we're reading through and working through the entire Bible with our eye towards the one story that all of the books of the Bible together tell. And that's the story of God's salvation of his people, the, the drama of God's redemption. And just to catch you up a bit on where we are, uh, we have seen God call a people to himself, pledge his faithfulness to that people. We've seen him keep his promises that he's made to that people, delivering them from slavery in Egypt, bringing them to the land that he had promised their ancestors, uh, bringing them into that land, defeating their enemies on their behalf, providing for them. And we've seen that land now distributed amongst the tribes of God's people. In the last couple of weeks, we've watched how God's people have responded to being in that land, that promised land that God had had given them. And we've seen that it didn't go so well for them. And last week in particular, we looked at how the people had gotten to a place where they were openly rejecting God as their king. They were looking around at the nations around them. They were seeing the way the nations were led. And they decided that they wanted to be like the rest of the nations. And they said, we want a king like them, who will fight battles on our behalf, who will lead us. And oh, what a height of rejection and forgetting how God was their king, had defeated enemies on their behalf, had rescued them, had brought them to this place, had provided for them, had cared for them. Now they're openly in the place where they're rejecting God as their king and demanding a king like the rest of the nations. And we saw specifically last week God give them and promise to give them the very thing they were asking for. And we looked at it like this. Sometimes you get what you want, but it really isn't what you need. Sometimes when you get the very thing you want, you need to be careful because it's, it's really not the thing that you need. And this morning, we're going to look at exhibit A of that in the life of Saul, the very first king of Israel. And we're going to pick up his story in chapter 15, but in just a second, I want you to put your finger there because we're going to go backwards to see how it began for Saul, and we're going to get our way up to chapter 15 and, and see this begin to play out in his life. So if you've got your Bibles open, First Samuel chapter 15, let's look at verse 1. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you, king over his people Israel, And now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Now, we'll stop right there. We're going to go a little faster in some spots, so don't worry about it. We're not going to stop at every single sentence. But if you remember the way we we ended last week, we saw when the people were rejecting God as their king, uh, God told Samuel to warn them about what it would be like. And Samuel gives them a picture of what life would be like with a king over Israel that was like the king that were over the rest of the nations. It was going to be miserable for them. Even though that's what they want, it's not going to go well for them. That king is going to take their families, take their daughters, take their sons, take their flocks, take their herds, all for himself and for his purposes. But God gives them the very thing that they asked for. And so as we continue on in the story, we we just expect that God's going to show us now exactly how bad these kings really are. But it doesn't start that way with Saul. 
It's kind of surprising when we pick up Saul's story. So leave your finger there in chapter 15. Go back to chapter 9. Let's just see how this story picks up after this warning and after God gives them the very thing that they think they want. Chapter 9, verse 1. I'll just read a little bit, and let's just show you what it was like. There was a man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeor, son of Becherath, son of, I still didn't look up how to say his name in between, but he was a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now here's a little bit about Saul, a little story. Now, the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son Saul, take one of the young men with you and arise and go look for the donkeys. And so just stop right here. When Saul first appears on the scene after this warning about what it's going to be like for the people of Israel to have a king like they want, when Saul first appears on the scene, what we, don't, we don't see a, a, an unscrupulous man. We see a faithful son. We see a man who was looking after his father's herds and his father's flocks. And this is supposed to say something to us as we read the story, because as we saw last week, uh, the sons of the priests, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, uh, those knuckleheads led God's people into all kinds of idolatry and rebellion. It didn't go so well for the sons of the leaders of Israel. Even Samuel, God's man that we've seen so far and we're going to keep seeing throughout these stories, even his sons didn't walk in his ways. Samuel, recognizing that his sons weren't walking in his ways, banished them down to the furthest, most southern part of, of Israel to finish out their lives because he knew that they were, they were not men who followed in God's ways. And so when we get to this king that Samuel has now said is not going to go well for you, we find that he's actually a faithful guy. He's faithful to his father, unlike the sons of the men that we've been looking at. And not only is he a faithful son, the Bible makes particular note of how attractive he is. I mean, he was quite the looker. There's only a handful of times in the Bible when the Bible actually pays particular attention to the extraordinary beauty of some of the people. And that's done for particular reasons. It means something to the story when the Bible does this. And so the Bible is communicating here as the people are hearing this story, they're writing this story and hearing it told that Saul looks like a king. He looks like what they would want and what they would expect. In fact, he might remind them a bit of a Joseph. Is he going to be another Joseph for God's people? He's a faithful son. He's a handsome man. He looks like royalty. Maybe he's going to be a bit like Joseph. And as we keep reading, we'll see really quickly that he wasn't just faithful to his father, not just appearing to be like a king, but he seems to be in the beginning a relatively humble guy. And when Samuel and Saul finally meet, Saul's out looking for the donkeys, and, and God speaks to Samuel, and he says, I'm going to show you the man that I want you to anoint, the one who's going to rule over my people. And the next day, God speaks to Samuel and says, it's this man, Saul. Saul's come to the city looking for the prophet of God that he might inquire of him as to where his father's herds are. And God speaks to Samuel and says, that's him right there. That's the one I'm calling to be king. And Samuel goes to Saul and he speaks to Saul. And in a sense, he praises Saul and his family and it takes Saul off guard. Look to how he responded in verse 21, chapter nine. Saul answered Samuel, am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribes of Benjamin? Why have you spoken to me in this way? I mean, why me? I mean, I'm from the, the lowest of the tribes and the lowest of the families in the tribe. I, I don't deserve this. I mean, why are you talking to me like this? Even when the day of his coronation, of his anointing comes, and Samuel gathers all the tribes of Israel together, and they've cast lots, and they already know who, who's going to be the king, but they go through this process 
Saul's response to his own coronation, his own anointing is unique. Look at this in chapter 10, verse 20. It says, Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Mm, Really? He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and the Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. Didn't see that one coming, did you? But when they sought him, he couldn't be found. Verse 22. So they inquired of the Lord. Is there a man still to come? Did we miss it? All right, we've cast the lots. It's come down to the tribe of Benjamin. It's come down to this man Saul. Where is he? Did we make a mistake? Behold, the Lord said, he's hidden himself among the baggage. Dave is anointing. It's coronation. He doesn't feel worthy of the honor. Your king's hiding in the bags. And so they have to go get him. But it goes on. I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a real honest sense of genuine humility. This really isn't fear, I don't think, at, at first in Saul. It, it goes on. You can see it displayed. You can, you can tell that by what the actions that continue to be taken by Saul. Right after he's made king and anointed, uh, he has critics straight away. I mean, here's your king. He's hiding in the bags. And in verse 27, some worthless fellows. I love the Bible. If you don't read the Bible and think the Bible's funny, uh, you just don't read it enough. Some worthless fellows. They said, how can this man save us? And they despised him. They brought him no present. He's hiding in the bags. What kind of king is that? How's he going to save us against our enemies? They're not going to honor him. I'm not going to bring him any present. But look what it says about Saul. In the midst of that kind of criticism, he held his peace. He didn't repay that type of evil with evil. He, he held his peace. Let him say what they were going to say. And right after that, he goes to his first battle. And he leads Israel in defeating the Ammonites and their king Nahash. And I just love this, the fact that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, You know what his name means? This is a sidebar for you. Serpent. God's people have been led into battle now, and God's man leading God's people have defeated the serpent. I I love that. It should tell you something. But Saul responds to this particular victory in a really unique sense of humility. I mean, he he could do almost anything at this point. He's the new king. He's led him in battle. They defeated the king. They defeated the people. Throw a party. Do something. But the people of Israel came together. Look at chapter 11, verse 12. The people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Who was questioning whether or not this guy could be king? Where are those worthless fellows? Who was saying this isn't the right man? Bring the men here that we could put them to death. Look at verse 13. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today, not me, not the army, not anyone else in particular other than the Lord himself has worked salvation in Israel. Now look at the, just the display of, of what looks to be genuine and honest humility in the life of, of Saul, this first king of Israel. And so as you're reading the story, what's meant to come in your heart and in your mind is the thought, could Samuel have been wrong? I mean, he said it was going to be so bad that to have a king, to reject God as king, and to have a king in his place, it was not going to go well for them, but he seems to be a genuinely decent guy a relatively humble guy. But as we keep reading the story and, and, and float through the next few chapters, they're going to paint a picture of a man who, who seems to start well, who seems to be a decent guy. He seems to be a good guy, but he begins to spiral into great sin and, and great self-destruction. Ultimately, if you were to read the entire story of his life, you'll find him at the end of his life, at the end of battle, taking his own life by his own sword. I mean, how does a man who starts so well who seems so good, 
spiral downward into a place where they're just committing some of these great atrocities and doing such terrible things. I mean, don't let Saul be abstract history as we read his story this morning. You know these stories. You know them in your own life. You've all heard them. Good men, good people, honest people, humble people, one day finding themselves committing some of the most terrible, some of the most heinous things you could ever imagine. How in the world does that actually happen? What's going on that, that takes a person from such a place and brings them down spiraling to such a low place? And this is what we're going to see in the life of Saul. And as we narrate through his story, we're just going to read through part of his story. I want you to pay attention and remember that we're not just learning about Saul. God, through his word, is showing us our own hearts. He's revealing to us our own sins, our own capacities. And so I want you to hear this as though God is speaking to you through his word. He's not just telling us about a man in history. He's, he's talking to you. In the next few chapters, we won't take time to go into too much detail, but you begin to see this spiral. You begin to see this slide into this kind of sin through the life of Saul. In chapter 13, he takes the credit for his own son's victory in battle. You see this deceit begin to rise up in Saul. This man who didn't even take credit for leading Israel in the first battle they went through, but when his son conquers others, he's now deceiving himself and deceiving others, and he's taking credit for what his son did. In chapter 13, you also see him showing great disregard for God's word out of, out of a fear for what could happen to him in this present life. He, he disregards the commands of God, and, and God had spoken to him through Samuel earlier in chapter 10, and Saul was commanded to go to Gilgal to a particular place, wait seven days there for Samuel who was going to come and who was going to offer sacrifices to the Lord, and then Saul was going to lead God's people out in battle against the Philistines. But when Saul gets there and the Philistines begin to gather and their garrisons begin to form. The people begin to run and Samuel hadn't quite showed up yet. Saul goes ahead and offers the sacrifices in Samuel's place. Look at this. Just listen to it. I'll let you read this one. In, in, in verse 11, chapter 13, Samuel finally shows up. And he says, what have you done, Saul? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me, here's what I've done. Just listen real quick. Before I actually tell you what I did, just listen. The people, they weren't hanging out. The people were scattering. And look, you didn't come within the days that you had appointed. You weren't here when you were supposed to be here. And then look, the Philistines, they had mustered at Michmash. They were gathering together against us. And so I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I've not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself. I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. If you had, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. The king is under the word of the Lord. But just like we've seen in the previous week, Saul wants what he wants, when he wants it, the way he wants it. And he finds himself sliding into particular patterns of excusing and shifting blame for his own actions. The people scattered. You didn't show up. The Philistines were getting strong over here. So I took it into my own hands. I did what I wanted to do, the way I wanted to do it, in a sense to try to achieve the ends to which I wanted. And it keeps going. Chapter 14. You see Saul make a really rash vow to the Lord. And he says that his men, the fighting men of Israel, they're not going to eat before they go into battle. 
They don't get to get strength before they go into battle through eating. And so the, the Israelites go to battle against the Philistines, and you see they win. But you learn that they don't win very decisively. They don't win as well as they could have won because they were weak. Saul had commanded them not to eat, but guess what? His own son never heard about his vow. His own son never got the word. And so when Jonathan and his men are, are, are on the other side of victory, and the land is, there's honeycombs on the, you'll see, the, you'll, you'll read the story, you'll see the description, there's honeycombs on the ground, there's honey everywhere. Jonathan dips his staff into the honey and he eats and his strength is revived. People say, did you not hear what your dad said? You're not supposed to do that. Well, it makes no sense. How much better for the men to be strong than to be weak? And Saul finds out what his son has done. Well, is he grieved for having made such a rash vow? Is he sorry for thinking that by making his men weak so that they win in victory, they'll look that much better? No, he's angry at his son. He's determined in his heart to kill him. And not only has his vow and his rash sacrifice now cost the relationship between him and his son, the men are weak. They've gone into battle empty and they've won, but they're tired. And look what happens in, in verse 31, chapter 14. It says, they struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to, I don't know how you say that one either. And the people were very faint. They couldn't eat. Look what happened, verse 32. The people pounced on the spoil. And they took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Saul's rash vow had cost his people to become weak in body, to become weak in spirit through this battle. And when they find themselves presented with the temptation of all these spoils, they do what God has commanded them in his word not to do, and they eat the meat with the blood still in it. All because of Saul's vow. They were weak in body, weak in spirit, and in the midst of temptation, they fell. There's more, but we've got to get back to chapter 15. We have a clock. We see Saul beginning to slide. He's beginning to look a little bit more like the kings of the nations and less like the king over God's people that God had talked about. I'm going to get to chapter 15. Look at verse 2. The Lord says, thus says the Lord of hosts, this is Samuel speaking to Saul now, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way out when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now this is just reminding us of something that's happened in the past. And we've gone through this story. We've read about this in the past. And you can go back to Exodus chapter 17 and read it again. But when Israel was passing through the wilderness, the Amalekites attacked them. And so God gave the Israelites a victory in the midst of that, but God did not forget what Amalek had done. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 25, God reminds his people of something. Listen to what he says, Deuteronomy chapter 25. God says, I want you to remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came up out of Egypt how he attacked you on the way. You were faint and weary. Remember how tired and weary you were. Remember how hard that was. You were tired and weary. And he cut off at your rear all who lagged behind you. And now this is a picture. When they're tired, they're weary. There's big caravans, nations moving across the wilderness. The tired and the weary is a reference most likely to a lot of the women and the children and the young people of Israel, lagging in the back, not able to keep the same kind of pace. And Amalek looks at the people in their greatest vulnerability and he cuts them off, destroys them at that point. God says, don't forget that. And if that was not bad enough, God says, he didn't fear me. He didn't fear God. Therefore, 
When the Lord your God has given you rest from all of your enemies round about in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess. So when you get to the land, I promised, which is where they are now, when you get there and you've got your space and you had victory over the people that were there, you shall blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So verse 4, back in chapter 15, Saul summoned the people and he numbered them in Telaim. 200,000 men on foot, 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and he lay in wait in the valley. And then Saul said to the Kenites, go depart. Go down from among the Melekites, lest I destroy you with them. For as opposed to Amalek and his people, you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. And so the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. The time for God's justice had come. God had held out his patience against Amalek long enough. And now through God's people, through the Israelites, God was enacting his justice on Amalek. And it's important as you read through this and and this story and understanding what's going on, uh, this is not an act on Israel's part of any type of political gain or any play for power or any play for wealth. This is simply the justice of God being enacted against a man who did not fear God, who had destroyed part of God's people who did not show the proper fear of God. It is God's just response to those who disregard him and reject him. And his justice is being played out through his people, through Israel. And so look at verse verse 8. Talking about Saul. He went to battle just as he was told. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And he devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. Is that what God told him to do? Is that a fulfillment of the word of God or the command of God that he had given Saul? No. Saul was tragically, fatally disobedient here to God's word. We're going to see him look even more and more like the kings of the other nations, less like the king that God wants for his people. Verse 9, Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good, and they would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So Saul didn't obey the word of the Lord. God said, set it all to destruction. Saul kept the king. Saul wasn't after justice. God said, look, this is about justice and my glory. You don't get to profit from this. This isn't about profit. This isn't about power. This isn't about wealth. This isn't about political imperialism. This is about justice and my glory. You don't get to profit from it. But Saul, being like the kings of the other nations... Being like Agag himself, Saul makes it about power for himself, and he keeps the king alive. It wasn't professional courtesy. It wasn't one king doing a favor for another king. It was Saul saying, by keeping Agag alive and and making him my slave, I'm a king of kings. It became about power for Saul. Saul didn't wipe out all the animals, all the ox. Saul kept the best for himself. The best of the flocks and the herds in this particular time represented the heart of wealth of these people. They weren't pets. This was their capital. And Saul made it about gaining wealth and about gaining power. Instead of the justice of God being wrought through the people of God, Saul became just like the rest of the kings. He went after the power. He went after the wealth. Just like God said the king would. You want a king like everybody else? You want to be just like everybody else? Fine. I'll let you have the very thing that you want and just see how that goes for you. Verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I've made Saul king, for he's turned back from following me and he's not performed my commandments. 
I love this. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Saul was his man. I mean, God had used Samuel as his prophet to identify Saul, to anoint Saul. Samuel's been there with Saul this whole time. He's delivered the word of God to Saul as king. This is his man. There's a close relationship here between Samuel and Saul. And Samuel hears about what's going on with Saul, what Saul's done, how he's disregarded the word of God. And it grieves him, and he spends all night crying. I don't know if you've ever been in that place. Someone you love, and you hear what's going on in their heart. You hear what's going on in their life, and it's bringing you to the place of such grief. Just staying up all night crying for them crying out to the Lord on their behalf. This is what's going on with Samuel. In verse 12, it says, Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. Can you imagine what he felt like that morning? Uh, just the kind of a bitterness of soul as he wakes up and his boy Saul is just sliding off the cliff, disregarding the commands of God and the word of God and leading the people into great devastation. And he rose up early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. And he turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Saul's defeated the Amalekites. He's partially obeyed the word of God, and they have achieved a victory over God's enemies. The first thing Saul did was build a monument for himself. Well, before you allow yourself to make Saul just a piece of history that we're learning about, I want you to ask yourself what you do after your big victories in life. What do you do when that paycheck comes and that bonus comes? What do you do when you have achieved a great victory in some aspect of your life? Do you go and buy monuments for yourself? Saul's not any different than the rest of us. We have the capacity to achieve the things that God has called us to do and God work those things through us and then we can turn around and make it about ourselves. Build up our reputation in the eyes of other people. Do whatever we need to, be, to do for people to perceive us the way we want to be perceived. And Saul's just gone through this great victory, and evidently he was more interested in getting a name for himself than in making a name for God through the obedience to God's word. That's the very thing that God had said would happen if they would just listen and obey. I'm your king. I'm your God. I'm giving myself to you. Listen to me. Listen to my good words for you. Listen to them and obey them, and I promise that through you, my blessing will spread to the nations. I've promised to be your God and you be my people. You listen to my word and obey and great blessing comes because I'm yours and you're mine. Instead of making a name for God through obedience and trust in his word, Saul's far more interested in doing what he can to make a name for himself and he had misplaced the praise that was rightly due to God and he turned it back around on himself. Which is an amazing thing because you're meant to hear that in light of the story from the very beginning when we first met Saul. And back in chapter 9, wasn't Saul just amazed that he was from the lowest of families and the lowest of tribes of all of Israel? That God would honor him of all people? I mean, wasn't he amazed that through Samuel, God would show this type of honor to him, the least of all people? I mean, if Saul really wanted to be honored, if he really wanted that kind of praise, if that was really what was in there, wouldn't he have been so satisfied that the the God of the universe, the the God who had delivered them, the God who has continued to be their God, has looked upon him and bestowed upon him the honor of being the anointed one over all of Israel? If you really wanted honor, Saul, and praise, what about the honor that's been shown to you by God? Problem is, Saul had known 
what God had said. He had listened to what Samuel had said. He had been through the process, but he didn't really hear what that meant. He continued to still see himself as small in his own eyes. Though God had bestowed the great honor and anointing upon him as king of Israel, Saul still saw himself as small in his own eyes. And therefore, he had to set about trying to make a name for himself. And in this process, he has misplaced the praise that was rightly due to God for who he is, and he's turned it back upon himself. And as we keep going through his story, we're going to see just where this comes from, the the roots, really, of our capacity to do such tremendously evil things and disregard the word of God, the way that Saul has and the way that so many of us continuously continue to do. Look at verse 13. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, so here they are, he's finally got him. He's heard about what's going on. He's heard about what's going on in Saul's heart. He's heard about the monuments. He's come to him. He's finally there with him. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I mean, remember, read the Bible like a human. Samuel's come to him. Saul knows what's going on. Saul knows what's happened. Saul knows what he's done. Saul knows what he was told. Saul knows what he's done. And here comes God's man. Here comes the prophet. Samuel comes to him, and Saul doesn't wait for him. Saul doesn't let him speak. Saul rushes out to him. Blessed be you. Oh, man, bless you, God's man. I've done everything that the Lord has commanded me. Have you ever had those moments where you just know what you know, but you're not really wanting to admit it or have other people know? Saul rushes out to meet Samuel. It's just an expression of the fact he knows what he's done. He's not going to let Samuel get that word in. He's not going to let Samuel confront him with this. He's going to go to him. He's going to start the process off blessing the man and, and hopefully slide into getting by with what he's already done. That's not the way it's going to work, but that's the way self-deception always works. Self-deception is just the ability that each of us have in our own heart to justify the things we know in us aren't right. It's to know something, yet not really know it simply because we don't want to have to deal with it. Self-deception is to know something, but not really know it because we don't want to know it. It's this capacity that our hearts have to smother an awareness of ourself or an awareness of the truth. Each and every single one of us, just like we see here in Saul, and we're going to see unpacked in the few next few verses, each of our hearts has the capacity to hide the truth from itself simply because it's just too painful to deal with. We have the capacity to see, to recognize the truth about us, but to deceive ourselves by it, simply because it's just too painful to really deal with. It's just too painful to really recognize. And self-deception in and of itself, it's, it's not the worst thing that we'll do. I mean, in and of itself, it's not the most terrible thing that we do, but it is the reason that we can do some of the most terrible things that we do. The capacity for self-deception is why decent people, good people, people like you read in the beginning of the story of Saul who start so well, can find themselves doing such terrible things. Watch how it unpacks in the life of Saul. and You ask yourself some of these questions about where you see some of this in you. 
Verse 14, Samuel's going to expose this self-deception. He's going to help Saul see just how deceived he really is, just how great his capacity to know the truth but yet not know the truth because he doesn't want to deal with the truth, how strong that capacity is. He's going to expose it. And what an evidence of God's grace. Now, how gracious is God to Saul here to bring his man, to bring Samuel to expose what's going on in him? I mean, it's unbelievable, but listen to what happens. Samuel comes to him and he says, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and lowing of the oxen that I hear? Oh, you obeyed God? You did? You, you devoted everything to destruction? Why do I hear those sheep? Why do I hear those oxen? Listen to Saul. They've brought them from the Amalekites for the people. Not me, this they. Nobody in particular, just everybody else but me. They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to you, to the Lord. See, they did it, I didn't do it, but they did it for good reasons. We disobeyed the word of God and we saved the best of the flocks and the herd because we were gonna sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we devoted to destruction. It wasn't my fault. I didn't really disobey God. They did it and they did it for good reasons, Samuel. Look, let's deal with them. They did it for good reasons. They did it because they were gonna worship God. They saved the best for the worship of God. Well, friends, I don't want you to miss this. I want to say this as clearly as I can. But religion, religion is one of the most powerful forces for self-deception in the world. So look, I, I didn't do it, and they did it. But listen, listen, even them, they did it because they wanted to worship you. We disobeyed to worship you. That's what we were doing. Isn't that what you want? Religious people like me and religious people like so many of us use our religious activity, use our religious knowledge, use our religious busyness to deceive ourselves regarding the truth about ourselves. We use our stuff, all that we do and all that we know and all that we've memorized and all that we've read and we stack up the books and we buy all the shelves and we go and do all the things and that's nothing more than a way to deceive ourselves about what we really know to be true about ourselves but we don't really wanna know what's true about ourselves because it's just too painful. And so we perform some of the greatest, greatest sleight of hand you've ever seen. If you've ever been on a street and seen a street magician do sleight of hand, follow the bouncing ball, follow the bouncing ball, follow the bouncing ball, just don't look over here, just don't look over here, just don't look over here. Look over here. I want you to look over here. Look at what all I've done. All the good things I do. Uh, look at all the things that I've done for the Lord, for the church. Look at how I serve. I don't complain. I'm so busy, I don't even have a spare night in the week because I'm doing all these things. Have you seen all the books I've read? You want to know how much Bible I've memorized? The new memorized version. I've memorized the whole thing. Just don't look over here. Look over here. Over here. I'm a good guy. A decent guy. Look at all I do. Just don't, just don't look over here. And we keep our attention, and we keep everybody else's attention all the way over here because it's just too painful to deal with what we know to be true over here. And in it, we use our religion and we use our religious activities to deceive ourselves about the truth. We know, but we don't know because we just don't want to deal with it because it's just too painful to know. 
So millions of us, and I know, I mean, I know this feeling. I do this all the time. Millions of us hide behind our religiousness as a way of saying, I'm okay. I'm good. I'm good. Just don't look on this hand. Look at the right hand. Don't look at the left hand. I'm good. Deceive ourselves into thinking that we're okay. And while we do that, the rest of the world looks and they're not deceived. Just like Samuel, they're not fooled. Our sleight of hand doesn't catch them, doesn't trick them. We say, don't look over here. They don't, they don't follow. All they do is look at our life and go, look, there's another reason why I don't have to take this gospel thing seriously. Look at him. He thinks he's fooled us. I don't need to take what he says seriously. I don't need to take this Bible seriously. I don't need to take this God, this Jesus thing seriously. He obviously doesn't. Religion is one of the most powerful forces of self-deception that we deal with. We've got to keep reading, though, because the story's not over. Verse 16, Samuel said to Saul, stop, stop, look, you're not fooling anybody. Stop. I'll tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And Saul said, speak. And Samuel continued, although you once considered yourself unimportant, have you not become the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and then sent you on a mission. And he said, go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. Fight against them until you've annihilated them. And so why didn't you obey the Lord? And now he's going to kind of, if I can use the image, stick a dagger in there and twist it and just expose to Saul in another way. I know what you're doing, buddy. You're not fooling me. It, this sleight of hand thing, it's not going to catch me. It hasn't caught God. Look at what he says. Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? That's exactly what they said back in chapter 14. When the Israelites, weak from not eating and going through battle, find themselves weak and tempted by the spoils of victory, and they pounced on the animals and ate them with the blood in them. And Samuel's just kind of quickly with a pointed edge here saying, look, I know it wasn't all about worshiping God. You didn't keep all the ox. You didn't keep the best of the herds because you simply wanted to sacrifice to God. You pounced on them. You ate them. You wanted to be pleased in them. You sought pleasure and enjoyment from them rather than being pleased in God using you, God protecting you, God delivering you, bringing victory through you, being pleased in God, being pleased by who he is for you and what he's done for you. You seek the pleasure from these animals. You're not fooling anybody. You can tell me it's all about religion. You can tell me you're not fooling anybody, buddy. Why'd you pounce on them? Watch the self-deception. I mean, it is like the greatest chokehold you've ever seen. Watch the self-deception. Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have. Sheep bleeding everywhere. I have done it. I've obeyed. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of Amalek. I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. Ah, partial obedience. Same thing as disobedience. But again, what grace God is showing Saul here with Samuel. He's using Samuel to expose this deception in Saul's heart. Now, one more time, Samuel's exposing to him, look, you're not fooling me. You're not fooling God. This is what's going on. You're deceived, Saul. Don't be fooled. Don't, don't read your own press clipping, Saul. You're deceived. And God's grace is coming to Saul in, in the form of Samuel, exposing his sin to him. And, and when God uses people, uses his word, uses people to expose our sin to us, to show us our blind spots, to show us how we're deceived about ourselves, uh, the proper response is what? It's confession of our sin and repentance. 
Oh, what gratitude that God used someone to love me enough to show me who I really am. To show me just how blind I really am. Confession and repentance. Let's look at Saul here. Let's see what really happens here with Saul. Verse 21. But the people, the people took the spoil, Samuel. The people did it. They took the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, the best things devoted to the destruction to sacrifice to your God. He's still deceived. He's still trying that same card one more time. It was for God. It was, it was for my goodness. It was for our goodness. We were trying to do it for Jesus. Your heart, my heart, Saul's heart, has an infinite capacity to hide from itself what's really true. All in an effort to justify to ourselves what we already know is really wrong. Self-deception is so, so fatal. And so Samuel responds to Saul. All right, you're deceived. I've been as honest as you can. Let me make an appeal to you in the midst of your deception. Samuel is making an appeal to Saul in the midst of his own self-deception. He's making an appeal to you right now in the midst of your self-deception. This is an appeal from God through his word, through his man right here. Samuel says, verse 22, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Listen, Saul. Listen, church. What what does God really want? I mean, what's he really desire from you? What does he really want? Samuel says, listen. Behold. Listen. That's what it means. Behold. Pay attention. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen than the fat of the rams. Don't be so deceived and to think that what God wants from you is your activity rather than your heart. He doesn't want your stuff. He doesn't want your books. He doesn't want your service opportunities. He doesn't want your sacrifices. He wants your heart. He wants you. He wants you to listen. He wants you to hear his word. Listen to his word. Be obedient to his word. Because you know who he is. Because who he is isn't just knowledge in your brain anymore, but it's warming of your heart. He's your God and you're his people. He wants you to listen. He he wants you to obey. We talk a lot about being people of God's word around here, knowing God's word and the vital importance of God's word. And we will continue to talk about the vital importance of God's word and finding ways to teach people God's word. We talk about serving the city around here and being God's people in the place where he's put us to go and do the things that God has called us to do. But here's the thing. Read all the books you want. Memorize all the verses you want. Go to every opportunity on the city you want to serve somebody else every single night of the week. But when you go home, if your family's falling apart, if your wife is hiding under a table and your kids think you're going to hit them, if your family's falling apart but you're out there reading everything, doing everything, serving everything, going through all the systems, going through all the structures, what good is it? There's a cancer in your own home destroying your family from the inside out. But don't look over here. Look over here. Don't pay attention to this hand. The bouncing ball is over here. I do everything you tell me to do. I read everything. I serve everything. Look, I'm really okay. Self-deception, friends. Religious self-deception is one of the most powerful forces for our own destruction. And it has got a hold on Saul. Samuel says, listen, your rebellion, your rebellion, your disobedience to God is the same thing as divination. I don't... It's not divination. I'm just doing something for Jesus over here. Even though he told me not to, I'm just doing it for him, right? Oh, it's the same thing. Divination, you're looking for wisdom and direction from something other than the word of God. 
Saul's rebellion, your rebellion, my rebellion, it's the same thing. We're looking for wisdom, looking for direction in something other than the word of God. We're going, God says this, do this, here's his command, here's his word, I think I'll get a second opinion. I think someone else might have something to say about this, namely me. What do I think we should do? Our rebellion and disregard for God's word is the same thing as those who go to a diviner trying to figure out what the next thing to do really should be. Because both of us are disregarding God's word, disregarding God's wisdom. He says in presumption, which some of your Bibles will say is defiance, it's really getting after the same thing, the same disregard for God's word. Your presumption, your defiance is the same as iniquity and idolatry. And we're looking for something other than the word of God and the person of God to give us direction and to give us wisdom, namely our own wisdom and ourself. We're making ourselves our own idols. Because of this, Samuel said, you've rejected the word of the Lord and he's rejected you from being king. So what's the proper response now? Confess and repent. Come on, Saul. Verse 24, Samuel, Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Why did Saul fear the people? And why did he obey the people and not God? Well, he was more fearful of the people's displeasure of him than he, would have dis- than he was of displeasing God. Saul was more afraid of what the people would think of him and how he'd let them down by not doing this than he was of fearing the Lord and disobeying the word of the Lord. It's tragic disregard for the person of God. Tragic disregard for the word of God. But he said he was sorry, right? Right? Know what he said? I've sinned. I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord. It looks good, doesn't it? He's confessing. We're we're getting the right direction. But you know as well as I know, there are ways to say you're sorry when you're not really sorry. There are ways to say I've done something wrong and you really don't mean it. The way you understand how sincere that apology or that confession is is by what happens next, how it's followed up. And this is what we see in, in Saul. Verse 25, now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Samuel said to Saul, I'm not gonna return with you. You've rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and he's given it to a neighbor of yours who's better than you. And also, listen to me, Saul, the glory of Israel, he's not gonna lie or have regret. For he's not a man that he should have regret. Verse 30, then Saul said, I've sinned. Here we go. Come on, Saul. I've sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul. And Saul bowed before the Lord. Forgive me. I've sinned. Okay, you got me. I'm caught. All right, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. Thought I could fool you. Thought I could fool everybody else. Thought I looked good because I was doing it for Jesus. You got me. I'm caught. I'm sorry. Now, just go with me back in front of everybody and show everybody that we're forgiven. We're good. Honor me in front of everybody else so that my name still looks good. People still trust me. My reputation's still intact, okay? Oh, golly. Religious self-deception. He just doesn't get it. Sounded good. It looked good, but it wasn't real. And then we see something just truly astounding, and I I love this. Samuel, old man, coming to the end of his life, God's man, God's prophet, the man of God, hears the word of God, he listens to it, 
and he obeys it, and he defeats God's enemies. I love this. Look at what it says, verse 32. Samuel said, look, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came, came to him cheerfully. How smug. That's a conquered king. He's been captured. Samuel calls for him, and he's happy. He and Saul must have chatted at some point. And he must feel really confident in his piece of position of leverage and power here. So he comes to Samuel, and he's, he's cheerful. Look at what he says. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. Look, Samuel, let's just call it even, right? Let's just call it even. You won, I'm here, it's all good. We can just go on. We can negotiate a peaceful settlement here between you and I. Let's just call it done. Let's just call it even. Samuel's no joke, man. Verse 33, Samuel trusted the word of the Lord, heard the word of the Lord. He's going to be obedient to the word of the Lord. Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Saul, he spared God's enemy. Samuel, and he slayed him. Saul wanted a, an ease and a life that let him have everything he wanted, that would keep everybody quiet, that would keep his reputation in a particular place before the people, and that would allow him for the rest of his life to build monuments to himself. But God wasn't going to allow this. All along, Saul was deceived. And he had the capacity to smother within his own heart what he knew to be true about himself. God had given his people, he had given his king, he had given him a mission that demanded obedience. Listen, God has given his people, you and I, a church. He has given us a mission and it demands obedience. God isn't going to call you to hack anybody to pieces. All right? That's not the mission that God has called his people onto. The mission that God has called his people onto, called you and I onto, is to join with Jesus in his battle. Jesus' battle is not against flesh and blood. That's not his fight. His battle is against the powers and principalities that see the remaining elements of sin within us, that continue to deceive us, that cause us to turn away from a trust and a faith in the person and work of of God. Our enemies are the, the powers and principalities. Those things that seek to draw us away. And here's the thing, Jesus, our our king, he does not negotiate with enemies. He doesn't make negotiated settlements with his enemies the way that Saul was trying to do with Agag. Saul wanted that kind of peace, that kind of prosperity, that kind of ease of life, but it was the wrong kind and it came the wrong way. That's what the people thought they wanted. We want a king like that. But Jesus, God knew that Jesus was the kind of king we needed a king that brings a real peace and a real ease, and it doesn't come. It does not come with a negotiated settlement with his enemies. Jesus comes as our king against the powers and principalities that have asked to sift you like wheat. Against the powers and principalities, the Bible says, are roaring around like prowling lions, seeking someone to devour. Jesus comes against our enemies, the powers and principalities that seek to draw us away from God, and he doesn't come as an old man like Samuel with a sword. He comes as one who has already lived the obedient life we were called to live in our place and as one who was slayed before the Lord, dying in our place because of our sins, but that God raised from the dead. And Jesus walks up to our enemies, Satan, sin, and death, and he slays them through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection in our place. This is a completely different kind of king. The peace and the ease that we want 
is not the peace and the ease that we need. And the peace and the ease that we need only comes through having peace with Jesus. And when we have peace with him, when our faith is in him, when we have come to God and said, forgive us, save me, rescue me for the sake of your son, Jesus, when we do that, we have the peace and the ease that only he can bring. We can say that we've been crucified with him, but we're not dead. We have been raised to new life with him. He is our king, and we follow him with joy. And we can spend the next 70 years of our life putting to death the remaining deceit, the remaining sin that still resides in us. By his grace, hacking to pieces the enemies of remaining sin and self-deceit that reside within you and I. How do we do it? We do it by trusting in the word of God and the grace of God, the very things that Saul had rejected. Listen, when we realize that Jesus lived a perfect life in our place and died the death that you and I deserve to die because of our sin, and we ask God to receive us for Jesus' sake, we realize that though he did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, though he was great, he humbled himself and became small. In his humility, our faith in him, he gives those of us who still are small in our own eyes, seeking to make a name for ourselves. through his grace, he makes us great. And we don't have to spend our lives chasing that kind of reputation anymore. Saul could not believe what God had said about him. He listened to what God said, but he didn't really hear it. He listened that he had been honored, that he was the anointed king of Israel, but he didn't really understand what that meant. And he spent his life deceived, trying to chase down the very honor that God had already given him. And when we realize that Jesus became small, so that through faith in him, you and I could find our lives hidden in him, we could become great. Oh, you want freedom. You want ease. This is the kind of joy, the kind of ease, the kind of peace, the kind of prosperity that we get through this king. God knows exactly what we need. He knows exactly how to give it to us. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, I know how easily self-deceived I am. I know that it's the most dangerous thing for me. I, I spend my life reading this stuff. I spend my life thinking I'm busying myself to do enough that you'll, that you'll love me, that you'll honor me, that and that's what you want. Don't you just want me to do those things? Lord, help me, help us. This is my prayer. Help us to see that what you want is our heart. What you want is my heart, my trust, my surrender, my delight. Lord, I ask that you would do what only you can do by your spirit and through your word to bring our hearts this morning to a place of great joy, great delight in your glory through the face of your son, our King, Jesus. We ask this, Lord, for your namesake. Amen.